The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. I want to invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If, if you need a Bible, there's some in the seats in front of you. There's a little rack there. And Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 this morning. We're going to be looking at mothers who are unashamed. Mothers who are unashamed. At least that's our goal this morning. And so once you've found that, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, I want to invite you to stand again in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let us pray. Father, we, we, we gather here, and we go all the way back to the very beginning, all the way back to the foundation where You first revealed Yourself to us. And Lord, I pray today that You would help us to live in light of reality. Lord, I pray that You would give us the right perspective, the perspective that's in line with Your perspective, Lord, that we would think Your thoughts after You. That we would live our lives according to the purpose for which You have given us these lives. Lord, I pray for specifically this morning for our mothers, for our women. Lord, I pray that You would give them confidence to live as You have called them in this world that is not always hospitable to that calling. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in 1818, Mary Shelley published her novel, Frankenstein. Now, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. She was actually 18 years old when she wrote it. Uh, She wrote it because her and two other English authors, Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, who she would go on to marry, hence Mary Shelley, they they decided they were going to have a competition between the three of them. Who can write the best horror story. I think it's safe to say that Mary Shelley won that competition with Frankenstein. I don't know about you, but as soon as I hear 
the name Frankenstein, I immediately think of these early 20th century movies and this green-looking monster, right? This is Frankenstein. But in the book, in the novel, Frankenstein is actually not the name of the monster. Frankenstein is the name of the scientist, Victor Frankenstein, who created the monster. And that's what the story's about. Victor Frankenstein creates a human-like creature in a laboratory. That creature escapes because that creature is like a human being. That creature has a mind and a will of his own, but he has a hideous appearance. And so all of his attempts at kindness are returned with people who are just aghast and disgusted by him. And so he, immediate, he, he eventually begins murdering people in an attempt to convince his creator, Victor Frankenstein, to make him a female companion. When the story was written, it was at the height of what historians call nowadays the scientific revolution. This is when a lot of things were advancing very quickly. A lot of new developments. Science was beginning to be celebrated as the, the, uh, the way for us to be able to overcome so many of our human deficiencies. And so many people historically have interpreted the book as a warning. A warning against not crossing certain boundaries in our, in our science. That there's certain things that we just should not do. That we, there are certain things that, that we should leave to God. So many people interpret the Frankenstein book as a warning against usurping the power of God. Well, this past week, I actually read an interesting contemporary opinion of what the book is actually about. And this author argued that the Frankenstein novel is also about usurping the power of women. Because if you think about it, that's what's going on. It's about a man creating another human being without a mother. And this, this thesis is that we live in the world, that, that this world that science has made us doesn't just attempt to be godless, but this world, this secular modern world, also attempts to be motherless. Now, I think both of those things can be true at the same time. But it's not hard for us to, to understand the essential role that mothers play in the raising of children. The essential, indispensable roles of mothers in giving life. It's fascinating to me that when God wanted to introduce a human being into the world, that He did not bypass the role of the mother. That God placed Jesus into the womb of Mary, the virgin. And it is through Mary that Jesus grew. It is through Mary that Jesus began to, to observe the world. And we know that mothers play an essential role in the development of a human being and the transition of a human being into a self. It is through mothers that babies begin to feel their connection to the world. It is through mothers that, that human beings begin to gain an identity, a sense of who they are. Now, Frankenstein aside, wherever, however you interpret it, doesn't really matter to me. There's little question that the modern world is not hospitable to motherhood. I don't think I really need to make the argument, but I'm going to here for just a second. Think, for example, 
about the way that we define success today in our modern secular world. You are a successful person if... You are a successful person, and all of our ways of answering that question come in measurables. You are a successful person when you have this income. You are a successful person when you have this number of degrees on your wall. You are a successful person when you have this kind of status, measured maybe in how many people follow you on your social media feed. I remember the very first days of Nikki and my marriage, right when I married her out of the youth group. That's actually true. I'm not being facetious. The early days of our marriage, though, you know, immediately 10 months after we were married, Josiah comes along. A little bit later, Lillian comes along. A little bit later, Samuel comes along. A few months after that, Eden and Elias come along. My wife, at the age of 22, was a mother of five. And I was very happy about that. <laughs> I think she probably had some mixed feelings. But she was happy about it. And she, was, she, was, she was obviously a woman learning what, what all this means. But, but I remember often people, people coming to her and saying things to her that it would make me very angry, where she would often have to defend her life choices to older women who clearly believed that she was wasting her life. You know, like, that's all you're going to be, you know? You're not going to go to school. And I remember her having to answer these questions, and I remember thinking, something is wrong in the world. And, th and these conversations often happen in church, <laughs> where people measure success in all of these ways that are completely contrary to anything the Bible says. How do we measure success? Well, that's not very hospitable to motherhood. The pressure of the market economy where we live is not hospitable to motherhood. Companies don't want to lose workers to maternity leave. They do not want to lose workers to mothers needing to stay at home with sick kids. And then we live in an economy that is built for two incomes, not one. Trust me, it's hard. We've been doing it. And now the very concept of gender is something that is no longer seen as good. That there's a distinction to be made between men and women, between husbands and wives. That today is in question too. Which is fascinating to me because most of these advances have been spoken in the name of science. And if science tells us anything, it's that men and women are different. A recent study at a Pittsburgh, it, it was a study of all Pittsburgh area high schoolers. And as they polled these students... The, the results were that one out of every ten rejected their birth gender. One out of ten. So even that's under attack. And so this morning, what I want to do is really simple. And it may seem obvious. You may be here today, and, and you may be one of the ones who are like, well, hey, I already know all this, great. But I think it's really important as the church that we say very confidently and very clearly what the Bible says very confidently and very clearly. And, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to Genesis 1, 
And we're going to look at the foundations of God's design in order to show unapologetically that femininity and motherhood is an unqualified good. And that if you are here today and you are a mom or you are a woman, the last thing that you need to do is apologize to anyone for that. So the first thing I want us to see in these verses is simply this, that God created man. Look with me at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I want you to stop there and go down to verse 27 now. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. Now notice that there are two different words used. One in verse 26, let us make man, and then another in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. And those are translated differently in the English because they're actually two different Hebrew words. But there are two Hebrew words that are used interchangeably throughout this Genesis 1 account. God is a maker. God is a creator. Now the stronger of the two is the one used in verse 27. And the reason why that's a stronger word is because that is a word that God in the Bible is exclusively the subject of. God is the one who creates. That's not something that you and I can do. We make many things. I mean, we take pre-existing matter and we form it into new uses, but we have never created anything. Try as you might. You cannot imagine something into existence. You cannot speak something into existence. But we have a God who has done just that. A couple other details that you may miss because we're jumping right into a story that's ongoing. This is the sixth day of creation. And if you're counting, the sixth day is the ultimate day of creation. This is the last day of creation because on the seventh day, God is going to rest. Threes are really important in Scripture. Big things happen on threes. This is the second three, the sixth day. This is God's ultimate creation. This is God's crowning achievement. And we know that because verse 27 so emphasizes it. Verse 27 is like a little poem. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Three times we are told in verse 27 that God created man. And when it says man, this is kind of a way that we don't speak anymore. It's talking about human beings, okay? It's just a shorthand version to say God created humanity. I want you to notice who's doing the creating in verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image. Now there is endless debate amongst biblical scholars about what this means. Let us make man. Now very smart people would say, well, there's no way. There's no way that this is talking about the Trinity because Trinitarian theology was a later development. And so here in Genesis, they didn't have a full-orbed, developed Trinitarian theology. So there's no way they're talking about the Trinity here in Genesis 1. And my response to that, church, is very simply this. There is a divine author of the Bible who intends things that sometimes the human authors of the Bible have no idea about. And so when it says, let us make man in our image, it is entirely appropriate for us to see a reference 
to the Trinitarian nature of our Creator there. Our Trinitarian God. One nature, three persons. He has created us in His image. Now, what does this mean? Well, I would argue that believing this is foundational for everything else you believe in this life. This is the number one foundational assertion of our faith. That before there was a tree outside, before there were mountains, before there were living beings, there was a divine consciousness who had an agenda, who had a plan, who had a purpose for this creation that He has made. And we know that that makes sense to us because you've never found any created object, anything else that just appeared in your whole life. You've never once found that. If you find an object laying in the woods that doesn't look like it belongs there, you're going to conclude that that was made by an intelligent being. Something has always caused everything can't think of one thing that doesn't have a cause and what we're simply saying is that God is the cause he is the first cause he decided to create and then he created and when this is denied well it has huge consequences if you deny that God created the universe then you also deny the ability to have a transcendent purpose for the universe if there's no Creator, there's no purpose. If there's no Creator, then we just make it up as we go. If there's no Creator, then everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. My purpose is just as good as your purpose. And what if my purpose is to murder all of you? Who can prevent that? You see, if there is no single Creator, then everyone else's ideas are just as valid as anyone else's. As I was thinking about this this week, it reminded me of something I read not too long ago about, it was in 1917, it's a French artist, and I butcher French names. Like, I saw Les Miserables one time. I know that's not how you say it, but I like to embarrass my wife when we go to the ticket counter, and, and sometimes I act like a big redneck, because I am at heart from Alabama. Two tickets to Les Miserables, please, and throw some popcorn in there. But this guy, so there, in 1917, a French artist named Marcel Ducamp, I don't know if that's how you say it, but he took a urinal to Grand Central Palace in New York to display it in an art show. So, so I want you to get this. It's like if you went down to the bathroom down the hall here, took a left at the end, and just yanked the urinal out of the wall and took it downtown Louisville. I'm sure there's an art gallery down there somewhere. And you just set it there and you said, here you go, art. And, and what's fascinating is that I'm still telling the story. Like, what's fascinating is that I even know about it. Because the fact that I'm sitting here telling you about it means that some people thought it was valid. In fact, the art show decided that they couldn't remove it. And the artist made the argument that ordinary objects become art according to the will of the artist. You see how that works? You see, that is how every single person who denies a creator is living their life. Meaning 
purpose, ethics, values are simply the creation of the individual autonomous will. If I want something to be, then I make it so. And that is the approach of living in the world that we live in. We all know what the purpose of a urinal is. I don't need to explain that to you this morning. And if you would have asked the creator of that urinal what the purpose of the urinal was, what would he have told you? Or she? I'm sure it was a man. (laughs) There's no way. But he would have said that. He would have said, this is what the urinal's for. It doesn't belong over there in that art gallery. He probably would have been flattered. But that's how we live. So meaning and purpose fall when you deny this. The other thing that falls is is any values at all. There's no creator. How can you talk about values at all? How can you talk about unseen truth? How can you talk about ideas? How can you talk about love? How can you talk about truth and beauty and moral goodness and any kind of evaluation that we live on day to day? All of it is left. If if there is no creator, if there is no consciousness behind the material universe, the only thing that's left is this material world. That's it. Don't tell me what it means. Don't tell me that it's beautiful. Don't tell me that what I'm doing is right or wrong. If this is it, then that's all. Now what's fascinating is that throughout history, many people have tried to live by this. But you know what I've never found? I've never found even the loudest atheist. I've never met anyone who consistently lives according to this principle. I have never found anyone who lives their life as if true goodness is relative. As if you just make up ethics. As if truth and beauty are in the eye of the beholder. I have never met anyone who lives by that. Because as soon as somebody comes and violates your personal property, what are you going to say? That's not right. So where does that right come from? So you see, Genesis 1, this this isn't just a cute little story. This is foundational for everything else that we believe as a Christian. We confess when we read Genesis 1 that this is God's world. And if it is God's world, then it is God who tells us what its meaning is. It is God who tells us what its purpose is. It is God who defines truth. It is God who defines beauty. It is God who defines goodness. We don't get to make this up. We come to Him and we submit and we say, you're the Maker. You tell us what we're supposed to do with these lives that you have given us. Listen to me. Science is really good for a lot of things. If it wasn't for science, we wouldn't have a lot of things that we have today. Life expectancy wouldn't be what it is. There's a lot of things that we've developed that have helped us advance. But let me tell you something. Science is not sufficient. Science can only study the material world. We need God to tell us what it means. We need God to show us how to live. So here's the second thing I want us to see in this passage. God created man first. Second, God created man in His image. And you see the language there. 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then this repeats again in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What does this mean? I think for us to understand what this means, it's helpful for us to think about something from the world that this comes from. So in the ancient world, kings, when they would dominate mass amounts of land, you wanted to show everybody who lived in these regions who the king was, right? I'm the king. And so what would you do? You would put, you would put statues of yourself, images of yourself. You know, Joe mentioned earlier the coin. That's one way to do it, right? You put an image of yourself on the coin. What do coins do? Coins are used every day by people. So every time somebody grabs a quarter out of their pocket, they are reminded who the king is. Every time somebody goes to the marketplace and they see the statue of the king, they are reminded who the king is. So kings would establish images of themselves that would cover their whole territory as a reminder of their reign, of their sovereignty, of their glory. Church, our God does not make lifeless statues. Our God creates reminders of Himself by creating living beings with freedom and giving them authority. That's what this text tells us. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? There's many ways you can tackle this question. You can look at the, the way that the text immediately talks about how we take dominion over things. It's clear that because we're created in the image of God, we're qualified to rule, we're qualified to oversee creation in ways that animals, for example, are not. No other living being is. You can talk about the things that distinguish us from all other living material, all other living creatures. We're able to reason by using language. We're able to discern meaning and value. As much as I love my bulldog, he's never woke up and told me it's a beautiful day today. You know, he's not able to think like that. But and finally, we're able to enjoy relationship with God. You know, we can know God. We can know who He is. He can speak to us and we can speak back. All of this is true. All of this is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. But, but what it means in the context of Genesis 1 is that because we are created in the image of God, we therefore have a purpose, a mission that we have been given by God. God has created us and He has created us with an instruction manual. And that instruction manual tells us that we are supposed to reflect Him. To represent Him. That in some ways, our lives, our living beings are supposed to show others who He is. People, living beings, one another. We look at one another and we are supposed to see God. We are supposed to represent Him. One way we do that, the text tells us, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. That's a word representing rule. Rain. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All the other things that God had just created. We are capable of doing this because God has made us in His image. We do not exploit the creation 
But our, our job is to secure the flourishing of all. But here's the problem. What happens when we forget that we're created in the image of God? What happens when we lose the dignity of our calling and our purpose? What happens when we deny this very fundamental reality? What happens is that we immediately begin to look elsewhere for our purpose. We immediately begin to look elsewhere for our identity. We immediately begin to look elsewhere for joy, for happiness, for flourishing. And that's the experiment that our culture is right now, right in the middle of. And how's that turning out for us? How do you think it's turning out? Right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, they did a study. High schoolers, 44% of high schoolers feel persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. It's about half. And we call that freedom. How do we define freedom? We, we define freedom as the ability, the unhindered ability to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. The goal in life is for the autonomous individual to be able to do what he or she wants to do whenever they want to do it. So the goal, what we're trying to do as a society, is remove any obstacle that gets in the way of a person from doing everything they want to do. That's freedom. That's the purpose that we've come up with. How does that turn out? Moms, let me give you an experiment to do this week. You ready? This week, I want you to give your children everything they want whenever they want it. And I want you to remove every obstacle that you've previously placed in their way. And then, in just, just one week, I don't need more than a week, I want you to come back next Sunday and I want you to tell me, answer this simple question, is your child happy today? I promise you, your child will not be happy. I promise you, your child will be miserable. Your child will be ruined. Back where I'm from, we call that spoilt. You know what that looks like. You see, we don't need that kind of freedom. That's not how the Bible defines freedom anyway. You, how does the Bible define freedom? We go back to Genesis 1. The Bible defines freedom not as the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. The Bible defines freedom as the ability to live the way God has made you. When you live in accordance with His design, you flourish. Imagine that. When you follow the instruction manual, you flourish. We've been told for a few years now, a few decades, that what women really need is freedom. What women really need, particularly... It's sexual freedom. The same kind of freedom that men have. What women really need if they're going to be happy is the ability to do whatever they want with their bodies without consequences. 
Now, how do you achieve that? How do you grant women this so-called freedom to be able to do whatever they want to do with their bodies without consequences? Well, medicate them, obviously. Give them birth control and make abortion as free as possible. As available as possible. I don't look out and see freedom, though. 50 years into that experiment, there's no freedom. Because it's not liberating when you sacrifice your God-given femininity on the altar of one-night stands and promotions at work. God is the one who defines freedom. God is the one who determines what flourishing looks like. And listen, I'm not a sociologist, but anecdotally, I can tell you that the most joyful people I have ever met in my life, the most joyful marriages I have ever seen in my life are the ones that are modeled after the design that God has revealed in His Scriptures. Without exception. I don't have data to back that up. I told you it was anecdotal. But you think about it yourself. Who are the most joyful people you know? We can't enjoy freedom if we don't understand what freedom is. Now listen, we were created with this freedom. And I don't have to remind you that Genesis, by the time we get to Genesis 3, we're sacrificing that freedom already. Genesis chapter 3, Man and woman have been created in the image of God to image Him in this world. They have been given this dignity. They have been given this freedom. They have been given this authority. And what do they immediately do? They say, we would rather be able to do what we want to do. And what does that immediately lead to? It leads to their death. It leads to all kinds of trouble. It leads to all, all of the corruption and suffering that this world has ever known. But church, listen to me. The good news is this. The good news is that you can be restored to God's created purpose because God did not leave us in that state. But our Creator sent His Son, the One who created us, into this world as a creature, as a human being, in order to rescue His image bearers and restore us to our former place of glory and dignity created in the image of God, saved by the perfect image of God. In Jesus Christ, you can be saved. In Jesus Christ, you are freed from bondage to sin. In Jesus Christ, you can now live freely again. That's the Gospel. Genesis 1, it doesn't mention Jesus, but we know from the rest of Scripture that Jesus is the answer to it. We made a mess of what God has given us, but Jesus has come to redeem us, to reconcile us, to bring us back in line with God's created purpose so that we can flourish in Christ forever. And that's our fate if we trust in Him. Here's the third thing I want you to see. God created man in His image, male and female. You can see that. So God created man in His image, in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And then, as soon as He states that, He begins to get specific 
about how it is they're going to image him as male and female. And I want you to see what it says in verse 28. And so God blessed them. He said a blessing over them. And God said to them, and we get several different commands here, what, what our task on this earth is. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful, which absolutely includes have babies, have children, also implied in multiply. We see this because that's how it's responded. That's how it's fulfilled in Exodus 1 where the people of Israel are being fruitful and they're multiplying and, and they're covering the land. So much so that the enemy of God's people feels threatened. Listen, when God's people follow God's instructions, God's enemies feel threatened. That's the way it's always been and that's the way it's always going to be until Christ returns. But there's more than just that. It's not just about having babies. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is about things that we make. This is about your vocation. This imbues your whole entire life with meaning and purpose. When you go to work on Monday morning, you can image God. Fill the earth. Subdue it. And have dominion in the name of the God who's created you in His own image. Some scholars have referred to this verse as the cultural mandate. This is what it means to live in the world. But I, I want you to notice that our purpose in fulfilling it requires male and female. It requires it. This distinction between male and female is an unqualified good. It's not a problem to be solved. It's not something that we have to overcome. Gender is not fluid. It is necessary. Biological differences should even manifest themselves in cultural ways. And we should celebrate those distinctions. Neither is more important than the other. The differences are good. If you don't have the differences, you can't fulfill the mandate. Now, if you read Genesis 1, you will notice that Genesis 1 is full of these binary relationships. For example, there's a contrast between lightness and darkness. There's a contrast between the land and the sea. These are the binaries. Light and dark, land and sea, male and female. When we get to the end of the Bible, it tells us that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And all of it will be consummated when the groom, Jesus Christ, marries his bride, the church. We'll sit down at a big table where there'll be a lot of Josh's barbecue and we'll have a huge feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. But listen, don't miss this. God has embedded complementarity into the fabric of the universe. When I say, I know that's a big word, complementarity, that, that two things complement one another, like two puzzle pieces, they go together. They fit together and they're able to work and accomplish what they were created for only because they are together. And we know this with all these other examples. We know this because these binaries are all required for beauty. Let me ask you this, if you're an art connoisseur, I'm obviously not, as you can tell from my earlier jokes about the urinal. 
What makes good art? Well, it's contrast, isn't it? When we see light and darkness contrasted, we go, wow, that's striking. There's a reason why you love to look at sunsets and sunrises, because it's the light and the darkness contrasting. And it, it makes the whole sky glow, right? You say, that's beautiful. That's, that's the way it's supposed to be. Light and darkness, right there where they meet, it creates beauty. We're going on vacation at the end of the month. We go to the beach every year. I asked my kids, it was Sam and, Samuel and Nikki were at home the other day, and I came home and said, hey, why don't we go to the desert this year? And they were like, huh? I was like, yeah, there's lots of sand. We just set our beach chair up out at the desert and lay out and put sunscreen on and put some tunes on. What's the difference? You know the difference. We don't want to go to the desert. We want to go to where the contrasts meet. We want to go where the ocean meets the land. It's the same reason why when you go on a cruise, you don't just stay at sea the whole time. You eventually want to dock. Because the contrast are beauty. Beauty is where, is where these binaries meet. And I would argue that it's the same thing for male and female church. We do not need women trying to be men. We do not need men trying to be women. We need to be people submitted to God because we acknowledge that the purpose in His creation is beautiful. Women be women. Men be men. And we work together and we know there's no less dignity in either role. They're both needed. I cannot do hardly anything that my wife does at my house with my children. There's so many things that I am incapable of doing. I don't even have the framework to be able to endure the things that she endures. And there's things that I do that she could never do too. And that's okay. That's a good thing. Because when we lose the distinctions that God has made, we lose beauty. And when we lose beauty, we obscure His glory. We don't image Him the way that we're supposed to. And so mothers, hear me this morning. Your femininity is a gift from God. It is an expression of God's perfect design. And the world hates it. The world hates femininity because the world hates limitations, because the world hates God, because the world treats gender as a problem to be solved. But we don't do that as the people of God. We say, God, your design is perfect. Help us find it. And so on this Mother's Day, let me just say this very simply. Mothers, the unique work that you do as mothers is the most significant work in the universe. I believe that. There's a reason why God gave His Son a human mother. You were created by God to raise image bearers. Don't think that that is a small thing. Don't let the world rob you of the pleasure that comes from knowing that you are doing exactly what God put you on this earth to do. Let's 
have in our church amongst the people of God. Men and women, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives who are unashamed to fulfill our calling as His image bears. Let's pray together.